Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, weighing us down, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Lord Jesus, would you help us this morning as we look to you, our forerunner, our hero, our savior, our friend, our helper, and would you help us as we consider all of those, the, the great cloud of witnesses that have all trusted you in their lives and in, in their own unique ways, as we consider their stories, as we reflect on how you have always been telling the story of your faithfulness in people's lives, just like us. Would you help us this morning to have hearts that are soft and open, minds that are receptive to uh, what you want to say to us, in the ways that you want to help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I thought I should begin with a confession this morning. The whole um, running the race metaphor is completely wasted on me um, because I don't like running. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> um, I'm playing. It's, it's a great metaphor. But it's this metaphor, it actually shows up multiple times um, in the Bible, in the New Testament particulars, the idea that Jesus has gone before us and he's like, he's inviting us, like, come with me, follow me, like, run with me. And, and it's, it's a race analogy because, like, there is, um, there's a way to follow Jesus. There's a way to run that's, like, full of freedom and joy and, and it's like, it's not arduous, it's not, it's not a drag it's not heavy. It's not like, well, I'll do this as some sort of like punishment or penance to get in heaven. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a joy-filled, freedom-filled race. And Jesus says, come, run with me. Run with me, follow me, learn my ways. And as you're going, like, uh, like let go or the things that cling so tightly and weigh you down. Let me, let me teach you how to run in such a way so as to win the race, to join me in my victory. And so that's the metaphor. And whether you're a runner or not, it's, it's a good metaphor. It's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. Because if you're going to run, shoot, don't go running in like wet jeans. Like get your dolphin shorts on. You know what I'm saying? Does anyone wear those anymore? Just blank stares, all blank stares. So the great cloud of witnesses, all these people who've gone before us, what can we glean from their lives? Jesus, to be sure, is our supreme example, but he's also the hero of their stories. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I've been excited for this one. So we talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the last three weeks, and you didn't think we were just going to skip Sarah, did you? Sarah is included in the list. Hebrews 11, verse 11, talks about Sarah. Um, 
Where is it? I gotta turn back now. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, because she couldn't have children, received power to conceive even when she was past the childbearing age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah was about 90 years old when she experienced the fulfillment of this promise. You will conceive. You and old Abe will have a child and through your family, nations will come and you will bless the world. Ultimately, Jesus the Messiah came through the seed of Abraham and Sarah. What a promise. And Sarah was 90 years old when she finally experienced the fulfillment of this promise. You know, my grandma is 90, either 90 or 91 years old. Is anyone in here in their 90s? That's super old, right? Now, I had to like do the math to, to figure out. I'm like, oh yeah, my grandma, my grandma is 90 years old. And I thought about it. Grandma, having a baby now, that's insane. Could you imagine? Don't imagine. Don't imagine. Don't imagine. I'm, we needn't imagine. But imagine that. 90 years old. Why does God make these kind of promises? This is, this is a serious question. Why does he do it like that? So it's one thing to, I mean, to make a promise. Hey, you're going to have a family. Through your family, I'm going to bless the world. Look, that's, that's, that's cool. Sounds reasonable. Oh, and I'm going to wait until you're nine. I'm going to wait until the circumstances of your life are such that, like, the promise almost becomes ridiculous. Almost laughable, in fact. Why does God make those kinds of promises? God makes promises such that we are positioned to rely on him beyond our personal power to prevail. That's, that's the kinds of promises God makes. God makes promises. This is the story of Sarah. God makes promises such that we are positioned to rely on him beyond our personal power to prevail. These are the kinds of promises that God's make. It's his M.O. Why? Why does God do this? What, what is he, um, what is his point? Um, that's a fair question, right? God desires for us to live in reliance upon him. So he'll make promises. He'll lead us in a way that as we follow him, at some point, inevitably, not in like every single aspect of life, but like in the big stuff of life, 
And the kind of life that actually is the product of the result, the outworking of following this kind of God. As we follow him, we find ourselves, as we trust him, as we're listening, as he's making these promises, as I believe him to fulfill his promise, I find myself positioned to where I have to rely on him, his faithfulness. And it's almost as if God is like <laughs> luring me, wooing me, inviting me, leading me to trust him in this way. And this is what God does. God wants me to live my life in reliance upon him. Why is this? Why does God do this? Um, he leads us in such a way. Now, some of you might be objecting. Isn't it true, though, that God doesn't give us more than we can handle? Have you ever said that? You ever heard someone say that? God, God will never give you more than you can handle. So I'm arguing God leads us in such a way to where we are almost forced to rely on him uh, beyond our own personal power to prevail. Okay, I'm saying God intentionally does that. And that would certainly seem to be the case in the story of Sarah. He makes this audacious promise. And you might say, well, I remember someone telling me one time that God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that true? Hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's true. Well, if, okay, may, maybe it's true with some major qualifications. Okay, I'll tell you where people get that. There's actually a very specific verse that that sort of idea, that sentiment comes from. Let me read it to you. It actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God is faithful. This is what it says. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God is faithful. The context here is when you're being tempted to sin. It's an interesting context. When, you're fi when you find yourself in this position where it's like you're almost being overwhelmed with temptation to not trust God, i.e. sin, God himself will provide a way out. He will help you. Oh, and by the way, um, so that's verse 13. Verse 12 says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you may not fall. <laughs> what Paul's actually saying here is that as soon as you start thinking, God would never ever allow me uh, to, to be in a situation that's like beyond my ability to handle or to resist, he's saying, oh, oh easy, easy, easy ego. That's a sure way to fall. As soon as you start thinking that, oh, I got this, Hmm. not apart from God's faithfulness, not apart from God's faithfulness. In fact, he'll actually position us in such a way toward the only way I'm able to endure this situation or resist the temptation is if God himself proves faithful. It also says in 2 Corinthians, this is the other book written to the Corinthians, the letter written to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I love this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced. We were under great pressure, 
far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Um, This is God's MO. He leads us in such a way. He makes promises that position to rely on him beyond our personal power to prevail in a situation. Why does he do this? Why wait until Sarah's 90? Why does God want us to live our lives in such radical reliance upon him? Because we still haven't answered that question. Why does God want us to trust him in such an extreme way? Why does he desire for us to depend on him? Why does God insist on such extreme dependence? And is this not just utterly counterintuitive so, to like virtually everything else we experience in life? Um, I'll answer that question now in two ways. Number one, God wants us to live our lives in extreme reliance upon him because this is the way we have simply been made. It's like saying, well, why, why do I need air to breathe? Why do my lungs require air? Because they're lungs. That's how lungs work. Why do I need blood to stay alive? Because that's how human bodies work. Why does God insist that I live in such a way that I must radically rely upon him? Because because you're a human being. And that's the way we were designed to stay alive. uh, To be fully alive to live and enjoy life like our creator like him i love how uh the psalmist says like a deer pants for flowing streams so my soul pants for you O god the living god like a deer pants for flowing stream so pants my soul for you O god My soul thirsts for God, the living God. I need God the way I need water. He's not just a bonus accessory. Without him, I die. Without him, not just as a sidekick, but as uh, God, God my creator, my maker, my sustainer, the one who started it, the one who will finish it, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, that God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, that God, without him, without learning to live in radical reliance upon God, my soul dies. My soul shrivels up. I no longer am alive. That's why. Like lungs need air and the heart needs blood. We need, need the presence of God in our lives. Um, And conversely, without it, everything goes wrong. It's like um, someone who builds a home. 
beautiful home. Um, impressive home. Outstanding home. We are in London, walking around. Anyone ever been in this, this city? Some people call it the greatest city in the world. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. You walk down the street, it's just like, who lives in these buildings? Mostly dead royal people. Um, it's, it's impressive. It's like building a mansion, a, a fortress, something so impressive, seemingly uh, eternal in its form, but you built it on sand. And eventually, eventually life will happen, and that thing's going to get knocked this way and that, and you'll find out what the foundation is really like. And unless we build our lives on bedrock, doesn't matter how great of a life we have constructed, it's gonna come down. It's gonna, it's gonna, get, it's gonna get rocked to the core. This is the story um, in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, one, two, three, four. It's kind of like our origin story, humanity's origin story. Starts out in a garden and the creatures, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, they're living and they're enjoying the presence of God, the uninterrupted perfect union with God and each other and it's so good it's so good and then something happens and instead of living in radical reliance upon God they choose the way of relational independence they believe the lie that actually they don't need God they're not like they're not becoming atheists right they're just like we don't need God we can we can be like gods kind of we can, we can decide for ourselves what is the best way to live our lives. So we don't need God. And something happens. It's like the very fabric of creation just like fractures. And the result is rife insecurity, shame, fear, blame shifting. And they, they start to hide. They start to cover up. Everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. And that's why. God knows. He knows how we're designed to flourish. He knows that unless he is the bedrock, unless we're living in radical reliance on him, dependence on him and his faithfulness, oh, we are an insecure bunch. How do we do it? So that's like some of the why. Some like big, big theology, abstract stuff. Like, so, like we're the creature, God is our maker, and he's made us to live in reliance upon him, in, in deep, intimate dependence on him. Um, and when we don't do that, we find ourselves just running around looking for something to replace that missing foundation. We usually look to other humans, which goes really bad. We end up like trying to deify broken people around us, and it just, it just never works. Never works. We end up dropping bombs on each other. It hasn't worked out for a long time. So how, though? How do we do this? How do we live? How do we, if we look at Sarah, how did she do this? How does a 90-year-old woman trust 
God in such a radical way. I mean, that's, what, that's quite a journey. How does one do that? How did Sarah manage to trust God in this way? How does anyone learn to trust God beyond their own personal power to prevail? Anyone got it figured out? What do you guys think? Okay, well, let me just, like, right up front tell you, like, I don't, I am figuring it out, okay? Like, daily, I am in process. Okay, so we, we are in this together. Now, as a preacher, I've done some homework, so I'm going to share some thoughts, but I, I need to qualify. I need to let you guys know, like, look, don't take this as, like, now, listen to the guru instruct you, okay? Like, guys, we, we are in this together. Let me, let me highlight a few things, which I think are extremely helpful. Number one, um, think different. I've, I've emphasized a few words already. Sarah needed God. She was 90 years old, had been unable to conceive her entire life. Okay, she didn't just need a supplement. She didn't just need like a, a tip or a, a, like a bit of a pep talk. She, she needed divine intervention. She didn't just need like a teaching or a new principle or like a life hack dressed up in spiritual terms. She needed God. She needed God to actually show up. And this, this, is, this can be a very different way of like fundamentally thinking about our relationship with God. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of us, I'm convinced, just when you think about like your average person sitting in a pew in an average church, okay, many, many, many of us, many Christians, approach God as like he's sort of my, my, my spiritual accessory he, he's God, he's God, like he created the world and all that, but, but like functionally, practically, in real life terms, um, I don't really like need him per se. Like I, I can pay my rent just fine, and I'm healthy enough, and, and I'm, I'm okay, I can manage. Like I could become an atheist today and it, it may not really affect my life all that much. I might have like different thought patterns and maybe over like a period of decades things might begin to like show the difference. But I don't really live my life in such a way to where I'm being positioned to radically rely upon the faithfulness of God. There's really nothing in my life that, that if, if not bedrock, the whole thing's gonna come crashing down. And so I guess my point is, if I can say it as, as nicely as possible, that many of us in the church are actually functional atheists. Do you know what I mean by that? Does that just mean you're a kind of? Um, I'm in a group. I was chatting with a brother this morning. We meet every Sunday night. It's called 423. It's, uh, this particular group is for men who've always struggled uh, with like sexual sin. So... I've, I've always struggled with sexual sin, like, for, since I was, like, a teenager. Um, one of the main differences when I met Jesus, um, I realized that these, these sexual temptations, these desires that I had, 
I didn't have to find fulfillment in ways that ultimately would lead to like relational destructive behavior. Like Jesus wanted to fill me. Jesus wanted to help me. Like I, I wasn't without hope. And so this group is really about like let, let's see if we can't take these desires that we have and rechannel them in such a way that Jesus can fulfill them. Um, and I don't, I'm not like trapped in this cycle of trying to find fulfillment through uh, behaviors that really don't end in life. Okay, so that's, that's the group. And we're basically, the group is run very much like a 12-step program. Um, it just so happens that like our drug is porn. Or it's, that's not even the case for like all the guys. It's, it, it varies, right? But um, so I've realized that actually most people who have ever engaged with like addiction in their life, they get this. Steps one and two are like, okay, this thing has got me, okay? I, I cannot fix this in my own steam. And I've come to realize that my only hope is in God intervening and, and bringing like order out of the chaos. That's steps one and two. If you've ever been in a 12-step program, like you get this. I'm convinced that we're all addicts. You are an addict. You're addicted to sin. I don't know what your sin is, but you're an addict just like me. I'll go even one step further, just at the risk of making everyone really mad at me. I think we're all sexually broken. Just look at the world we live in. If you're not, bro, sister, like, tell, tell me your secret. I want to know it. Because we live in a very, very broken world. Okay, maybe that's not true. Maybe that's just my own issue. Sorry to project. Sorry to project. But we're all addicts. We need Jesus. That's a very different way of thinking. That's a very different way of thinking. I don't just need a little extra help on the side. I need bedrock in my life. I need Jesus. Um, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and he will make your paths straight. The starting point of the Christian journey sounds like, I need Jesus. That's the starting point. The pinnacle of Christian maturity sounds like this. I really need Jesus. More today than yesterday or the day before. That's what Christian maturity sounds like. I'm just becoming more and more aware of how deeply I do need God's grace. I don't ever graduate from my need. I just become more aware of it. And I become more aware of just how faithful he is. He doesn't withhold himself. He's just waiting for me to like come to him. Like, do you, do you need me? I'm here. Oh, I'm here more than you could possibly fathom. But do you need me? Do you need me? That's number one. Think different. Sarah needed divine intervention. Number two, pray different. Um, in the story, this is back in Genesis 17, 17, 18, all the way up through um, 
20, I think. 21. Abraham has this um, kind of bizarre encounter with God out in the desert, as always. And um, this time, God appears in a meeting. Some men out in the middle of the desert just show up in front of Abraham. And Abraham immediately recognizes, like, oh my gosh, like, like God is, like, is in this moment. Now he's like speaking to me through these men out in the middle of the desert. Super bizarre. Um, but Abraham recognizes, and apparently Sarah also recognizes what's happening. She's in the tent listening, listening to the whole conversation. And we're told in Genesis 18 that she overhears the conversation that God is having with Abraham. And God tells Abraham that you're going to have a son, you and Sarah, your wife, the 90-year-old. Abraham was like 99 at this point, or like 100 or something, both super old. You're going to have a kid, and Sarah was listening. She heard him, and she laughed. Because it's crazy. It's like, it's, it's the laughable faithfulness of God. It's just so good, you almost have to like laugh out loud. She's listening. Um, this makes me think of prayer. I love the way Eugene Peterson put it. He said, um, prayer is the disciplined refusal to not act before God acts. Okay, Eugene Peterson, when, any, when a preacher ever says Eugene Peterson said, that's your cue to get your pen in your hand, Eugene Peterson said, prayer is the disciplined refusal to act before God acts, which makes prayer more of a listening exercise. Prayer isn't me simply trying to get God to do things that I think he needs to do. Prayer is me becoming more and more aware of what God is doing and then me participating in it. What is God doing? I don't think God needs me to remind him what he should be doing. Now, I don't think God has a problem with one of his kids saying, but dad, you said, because my kids say it all the time, and I'm like, you're right, you're right, you were listening, well done. So hear me right, hear me right. But God's a really good father. He's not negligent, he's not absent, he's not disengaged. And God doesn't need me to, to sort of like hold his job description in front of him and be like, hey, you need, to, you need to do what you're supposed to be doing right now. What are you doing right now? No. But what if, what if as a church family, we developed the discipline of refusing to act before God does. And in that way, our prayer really becomes more about listening than anything else. God, what are you doing? Because I'd really like to be a part of it. And God invites us to participate in the things that he's doing. This is, this is how Jesus lived his life. Let me read this to you. Um, John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, the Son, referring to himself, can do nothing by himself, he can, only, he can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever, whatever the father does, the son does also. That's how Jesus lived his life. Father, what are you doing? 
What are you up to right now? What, what, what sort of promises are you reminding me of? And then we lean in and we listen. Father, what are you doing? Remind me of your promises. I'm listening. I was listening to God this morning. I was in the boiler room directly below where I'm standing right now. I'm like praying, God, I need you to show up this morning. God, I need you. And I'm like saying all these things. And then I felt like God whispered to me. He said, you want to know what I want to do? And I said, oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, Father, what do you want to do this morning? What do you want to do? I sensed God speak to me. Can I share this with you guys? I felt like God say, this morning, I want to do cartwheels down the center aisle. I'm being serious. This was like as I was listening, as I was listening, this is what I sensed in my heart as I was listening. I felt like our father said, I want to do cartwheels down the center aisle. I want, to, I want to do jumping stars like around this room. I want to wake my people up. I want to engage. I want to see hearts pumping. I want to see sweat dripping. I want to revive my people. I want to wrestle with my kids on the floor. Like, I want to engage in a way that my kids wake up. He wants to revive. And this is with like all these things that I'm kind of like, I'm listening and then I start praying and I'm like, God, are you saying this? Are you saying this? And I felt like the heart of God began to just sort of like resound. Like, I don't want to just give my people a lecture. I don't want to just like say some things for them to ponder about and then forget 20 minutes later, which you will. It's very depressing as a preacher. Um, I want to engage with my people. I want to be like, I, I want to invite them to participate in the things that I'm doing in a way that they've perhaps never experienced before. I want to shake things up. Cartwheels down the aisle. That's crazy, right? That's almost laughable. Pray different. That was the point. <clears throat> Two more. Obey different. Obey different. Um, my note to self was not like Ishmael. So this, all, this, this story of Sarah all starts in chapter 17. In chapter 16, it was the story of when um, Abraham and Sarah made the decision to have a kid, but using Hagar, Sarah's servant. It was a terrible idea, like on so many levels. And it, and it was a bad idea. And God, he intervenes, and he's like, no, that's not what I want to do. I want you, I want you to trust me to do something beyond your personal power to prevail in this situation, not somehow manage it or, or sort of just make it work out somehow that doesn't even like in, require my involvement. And so she, Sarah had a moment where she was like, oh, like, okay, I, I know what God wants to do. I clearly, like, God can't use me. I'm too old, so we're going we're gonna to sort of finagle this. We're going we're gonna to manufacture a moment here. That's, that's a kind of obedience, sort of a faux obedience. Like, oh yeah, I trust you, God. I totally trust you. You can do anything. Okay, we got we to gotta figure out God's, I don't know, he's saying this thing, but he clearly needs us to help. That's not obedience. A different kind of obedience risks 
everything going terribly wrong. When you've been listening to God, reading the Scriptures, meditating on the Scriptures, listening to God, reading the Scriptures, meditating on the Scriptures, listening to God, right? And then all of a sudden, God speaks, and He says, trust me. But God, that's crazy. That's almost laughable. Trust me. Obey me. God, that's too risky. That could cost me too much. That could go terribly wrong. Obey me. Trust me. Obey me. Trust me. Love me. Obey me. These are all essentially the same thing. If you love me, you'll obey me. That's what Jesus said. Obey me. Obey different. Especially... In your relationships, this whole story, Sarah's whole story, this is, this is all relationship. Obey in a way that's risky. Meaning if God doesn't intervene, this thing could very well go wrong. Like really wrong. Like it's going to cost me something. Like there is a real risk involved. And it might feel like if I obey you in this way, how will I get my needs met? What if I feel lonely? What if I experience rejection? What if, what if I'm forsaken? What if you forget about me? What if you're a... God, what if you're not faithful? Ooh, that's risky. What if he's... There's a risky element to that sort of obedience, especially in our relationships, especially in our relationships. The greatest commandment, you want to talk about obedience, okay, you're reading the scriptures, reading the scriptures, you start in Genesis, you get all the way up to Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, here's a summary of all the commandments before me. Here they are. Love God and people. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor just as you love yourself. Okay, there it is. Love. Do it. Trust me. Obey me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Ouch. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. It continues to trust in all situations. Love hopes all things. Love continues to hope in all situations. And love will endure all things. Love doesn't bail. Love doesn't leave. Love doesn't give up. Love continues to believe that God is just as faithful as he has promised. And therefore, no matter how risky the situation, I can, I can remain. I can continue bearing in this situation. Now, if you're in a situation where you're being abused, and let's say you're in a marriage where you're experiencing a violence, the very most loving thing to do would be to physically separate yourself from that person. That would be very loving. That's a very extreme. I needed to sort of add that, right? 
More often than not, though, we find ourselves in these relationships where inevitably, if you just, if you just stay with it long enough, you'll find yourself in a position to where, God, either you've got to intervene or I'm out. Stay in a marriage long enough. Stay in a, in a friendship long enough. Stay in a church long enough, and eventually love will be tested. And it will feel like unless I leave, I'm not going to get my needs met. Unless I bail, unless I withdraw, unless I somehow control this situation, then I am going to be left unfulfilled. I won't get my needs met. And you'll find yourself then having to trust God in a very, very risky way. Love is risky business. And as we endeavor to trust Jesus in this way, obedience begins to take on a whole new nature. It is and will always require a radical reliance upon God because of the way Jesus loves us and then invites us to love each other. Oh my goodness, what a ride. What a ride. You want to talk about living on the edge, risking all, coming fully alive. Try loving someone like that. It will require you um, to occasionally look down and be like, am I still on bedrock here? Because this is getting, this is feeling very, very precarious. This is risky. Love endures. Love endures. All right, last point. Can I invite our worship team to come up, please? Sarah needed intervention. Sarah was listening carefully. She was willing to obey in a very risky way. And Sarah also laughed out loud. Um, in fact, not just Sarah, but Sarah and Abraham together. In Genesis 17, we're told that when God reminded Abraham of this promise, that he fell on his face and laughed out loud. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, in Genesis 18, when Sarah overheard the conversation where God was reminding Abraham of his promises, now Sarah laughed to herself. And then God was like, why'd you laugh? And Sarah, because she was too afraid to admit, she said, I didn't laugh. And he's like, yeah, you did. And most commentaries actually sort of explain that as if God was rebuking Sarah. I don't buy it. I think God was like, you laughed. I heard you. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. Is anything too hard for me? Why'd you laugh? Admit it. You laughed. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. And then in Genesis 21, when Isaac finally comes, they name the child. And you know, you know what they named Isaac? Isaac. Yeah. And you know what Isaac means? He laughs. He is the son of laughter. And Sarah said in Genesis 21, it says, When Abraham was 100 years old and when his son Isaac was born, and Sarah saw him and said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears about it will laugh with me. She laughed. 
She laughed. Jesus said in Luke 6 that he said, Blessed is he or she who weeps, for they shall laugh. You know, laughing, we consider the ridiculous faithfulness, like almost too good to be true faithfulness of Jesus. It's, it's almost enough to make one laugh out loud. Which is a good thing. Because so much of this stuff is like really heavy. It's like, oh my goodness, like this is, this is just heavy. And it was C.S. Lewis said that the serious business of heaven is joy. And as we consider obedience and prayer... And what was the first one I said? Oh, yeah, like my need, how I accuse you all of being like sexually broken addicts. Remember that part? It's all super heavy. But then when we consider the actual faithfulness of God, it's almost so good it makes one just want to laugh out loud, which is a very human thing to do. You know, like the psychologists argue that Laughter is a uniquely human phenomenon. I don't know, my cat does this weird thing that kind of sounds like a laugh, but like. And there is no actual explanation for like why we laugh. It's like, what are these things? Like, why do we sleep? I don't know. We just do. Humans laugh. We must laugh. When we laugh, it's a prophetic declaration of God's faithfulness. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A prophetic declaration. A prophetic act or a prophetic statement is when we say, yeah, I, I can see the current circumstances, but because Jesus is faithful, I'm saying, I'm agreeing with God that all things will be made new. I'm saying it out loud, and I'm going to live like it. That's a prophetic declaration. And when you consider how hard and heavy life can get and then you consider the faithfulness of God and you start to laugh out loud that's a prophetic act yeah I may weep now but I shall laugh because in the end God is faithful he's faithful can we stand together please